0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. When someone decides to start a built project, they face an important choice. Who are they going to use to design it? Their choice will come down to someone who's a registered building practitioner, who might be a builder, an engineer, a draftsperson, or an architect. Each profession has a unique skill set that will influence the focus of the project. But it can be difficult to choose who's best if you don't know what each professional will bring to the table. When it just comes down to comparing fees, hiring an architect might seem out of reach, or some of their services might seem unnecessary. So what do architects bring to the table? How can an architect help someone who's about to open a shop, construct a new apartment tower, or build their dream home? I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to architects Claire Cousins and John Wardle about the value of architecture. Claire Cousins and John Wardle are two of Australia's most respected architects. Claire started her practice, Claire Cousin Architects, in 2005 and has since won some of Australia's most prestigious awards and in 2013 was the National Emerging Architect Prize winner before becoming the National President of the Australian Institute of Architects in 2018. Claire was also an inaugural investor in the Nightingale model and is currently working on designing and developing an affordable and sustainable apartment building in the Nightingale Village. John Wardle is one of Australia's most celebrated architects. This year John was awarded the Australian Institute of Architects Gold Medal, signifying his contribution to the profession over his career. He has won national and international awards across his residential, institutional and public projects, including the Villa of the Year in 2012 at the World Architecture Festival, Reber Award for International Excellence for Captain Kelly's Cottage, the Daryl Jackson Award for Education Architecture at the Institute's National Awards for the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne, and the Sir Zelman Cohen Award for the Most Outstanding Work of Public Architecture in Australia for the Kerner Building. And during the coronavirus lockdown in Melbourne, we had the opportunity to talk to both of them while we were all working from home. So here's a recording of us talking about the value of architecture. Thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's really awesome to have you on the podcast and to get your perspective on this big issue. You know, we, when we talk to people who are thinking about getting involved in architecture, they've got a lot of questions and it's often something that when I'm speaking to a potential client or someone who's, who's not an architect, they're not really sure you know, what part we play in the building of a house or, or a big building And one of the questions that seems to come up is, what is the value of an architect? So if we sort of go down to the really nuts and bolts of of value when it comes to to money, um, a lot of people say that when it comes to property value, the value of a property is mainly based on the value of the land and very little to do with the building on the land. So when people are considering their options for any form of built project, how do you feel that you bring added value to a built project?
1: Look, I think, I naturally think architects bring um, significant value to uh, projects. Um, I think, I mean, one thing I've often said to clients, you know, is that if, if you've got a, you know, this is your set budget, say whatever, let's say a million dollars, you know, and an architect clearly is going to, um, the fees of an architect obviously significantly more than perhaps a draftsperson or a building designer. But the, the process and the interrogation and the kind of responsiveness that uh, and so therefore the time that we put into these projects, I would always say that even if that has eroded some of the, because we've got a total budget to spend, some of the the budget for the built um, outcome, I said that I think you will always get a, a far more um, cohesive and delightful outcome, you know, because as an architect we're interrogating the site, we're interrogating the brief, which obviously encompasses a budget, um, it's it's then trying to really dig deeper than the pragmatic uh, briefing of what spaces people need, but how do they like to live? How do they want to work? What outcomes or how do they want to feel right. in a space? And yeah. I think it's that level of really sort of deep diving and listening and understanding and interrogation and testing um, that really is why um, I suppose architecture can you know, bring people to having um, emotional, emotive responses to space because there right. is, it's a very... It can be complex. It doesn't have to be complex. I think very um, powerful architecture can be very simple, humble spaces. But I think um, architects have an ability to really transform space and make it very meaningful.
0: Right. And is that sort of, I guess, a uh, form of, you know, being able to see the forest for the trees? Because in an architecture project, if, if say, a client wanted to take take it all on themselves, there are so many considerations that an architect can can test things and pull things out of the process that uh, where we've been trained as we look forward, look backwards, hone in on a small detail, zoom back out. Is that the sort of thing that you mean?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's no one right answer. I mean, for us, the way our practice works, it's very rare for, for us to come up with a, this big, strong concept as a starting point. For, it, for me, it's much or for us, it's much more of a quite an iterative process of investigation, testing, working through and um, dialogue with the clients. And you can often see this trajectory or linear path. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes you go down a path and you've got to come back and recast it and try somewhere else. And so, Mm. but in saying that, there's not always one right answer, but it's more about the success of a project, I think, is when a, a building has really successfully responded to all of the constraints and all the criteria and the, and the and, and often sort of enhanced or capitalized on the constraints and turned those constraints into problems you know solving problems and that then there is this really you know exciting outcome
0: right and has that been your experience John that um, you know going through this sort of problem solving process that sometimes on your projects that uh, the problems have actually made made the project what uh, what they are in the end
2: uh, yes, uh, very often the case. Uh, I think it's interesting to go back to one of the aspects of your question was about the value of land and the value of building mm. on land. I, mean, I think more and more we appreciate that land is a very precious commodity in some ways. Certainly in Australia land isn't as expensive as in other countries. You know, capital right. cities such as um, Tokyo has land that is so expensive, and the building in fact is cheaper. That doesn't tend to happen here. Mm-hmm. But we do, I think, as architects, appreciate the, the precious value of land. And generally, when you look at any city of the world, you see that enduring nature of building, the, 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 the fabric of the city, by and large, has been produced by architects. That, that, that we feel, I think, it's a collective conscience that architects as a profession bring to building in any territory, whether it be in a pristine landscape or in a city centre, of this nature of buildings that should transcend time. They should be worthy. They should have a fabric that's in, that lasts um, and and the idea of sort of orchestrating a program that probably benefits beyond a, a client's initial thinking. And I think mm. as architects, we kind of um, we expand our ambitions very often. We often will say to a commercial client, well, let's think beyond the, commercial boundaries of this plot of land, you just purchased how will it will affect its neighbours, the footpath edge, the spaces that around it, how does it affect the silhouette and shape of the city? These sorts of things that generally good architects bring to projects can be both in one way transformative, they can be great agents for change, but also generally very aware of all that's gone before and the sort of the continuum with which we work within so i think there's a sort of a responsibility that our profession brings to these projects that can enlighten the client when establishing their brief and setting the charting in the course for creating a building
0: yeah, yeah I've, from what i've found you know being a young architect when you go to visit buildings which have stood the test of time and are absolutely amazing and actually give you a nice feeling within yourself it becomes more and more obvious that architecture can really give you something back you mentioned something about great architecture transcending time uh, have, has there been an example in, in one of your projects where you feel like you really you know, executed on transcending of time
2: um well it, it, everything you have just described is one of the great difficulties we have as architects because you've you've uh just saved a whole series of things that are really hard to quantify if we're presenting <laughs> ourselves to a client how hey, you there's no kind of testing or empirical measure for just about everything you describe. It's one of the great. It's one of the great mysteries of, of um, that our profession faces when trying to describe our our worth to others, and those that aren't willing to undertake that bit of storytelling about sort of emotion and res- social responsibility and all those sort of things that just see. Bricks and mortar, very difficult for, to, for architects to um, to be convincing. Um, I mean, there's an age old thing that um, good architecture can only happen with a good client. Um, I do think we've got a couple of projects that disprove that, that we've given, but generally <laughs> it's the case. Um, like I can think of one in the city of Melbourne where we're working with our client ISPT. They undertook of their own volition a $3.5 million archaeological survey of the Little Long Precinct before commencing the project. It, it slowed the project down by about a year. They had to pay out money, that Museum Victoria and, and mm-hmm. others came together to perform what's the largest archaeological survey in, in the CBD. Out of that yeah. came the discovery of old laneways and buildings that had been lost to, to Melbourne, lost to the map of the city, and we used that process to um, construct a very big building, and they now a suite of buildings, we've done a later one, 15 years later, that still identified and actually reclaim lost laneways and, and um, gathering places in that first uh, part of European settlement of the city. Um, that's, uh, that is for us one of those projects where, um, and really an engaging client uh, can be uh, encouraged to do something much greater than they'd first anticipated. And out of that, I think the commerce has then been extraordinarily rewarded by that um, responsibility they took to undertake all of that work. Um, it's a greater yield of the site. It's a it's it's a building that's I think it's quite an enduring um, structure that that actually benefits from everything that happens at ground level because of that that early work was done.
0: Yeah, yeah fantastic. I mean, it's one of those great things, I guess, that when a project start, you know so much about it. And then once it's actually started on site, then you can discover all of these extra things that can add to the project or you just need to rethink it in some aspect, I guess. Claire, have you had the same experience and do you have a project where it felt to you like you really uh, nailed that extra thing that goes beyond a house or, or another kind of building just being a building and becomes architecture?
1: Uh, the, the vast majority of our work is, is housing. And so I think there are those kind of moments and experiences that happen within houses. Uh, I think what's interesting to me is that so often there's an assumption that people all kind of want similar things, you know, they think that everyone wants open plan living and lots of natural light. And, and what I really find um, interesting in the briefing process is actually how different, you know, human nature is. And really, I suppose, interrogating that and really getting, you, you almost have to kind of really get to know your clients very quickly or get to understand what, you know, what experiences have informed them or, and spaces that they're drawn to and spaces that they're not perhaps uh, or what they, you know, maybe if they're converting a, or renovating an old house that's had no access to our, you know, our vistas to landscape and disconnection from the rear garden or very dark and no, no sort of direct sunlight. And so they become very kind of often quite pragmatic response, you know, pragmatic solutions. But at the same time, I think for me, I'm always... Um, Kind of gets such satisfaction from when you see a client and even no matter how much you've taken them through that journey of you know the, the design process and the design development and the documentation and the construction and seeing something come out of the ground still how often and even if you've um, built a model or even had some 3d images to try and really articulate a design even further than beyond a 2d drawing still how, how frequent the the delight and surprise is with clients towards the end of the project or even once you've handed over the project and then mm. within weeks after say we you know pop back in after after they've lived there for a few weeks that this kind of um kind of disbelief that 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 the house is now theirs and that they get these you know opportunity the rest you know to live in the house and the kind mm. of some you know often very prosaic domestic you know experiences can be really delightful experiences too you know and mm. so and for me that's really satisfying because Um, I think it is about those kind of small moments of where you might sit and catch the sun and have a cup of tea or, you know, even the sort of practical things of, you know, where do you drop your keys or how how is the house easy to live in that do actually make for um, delight, really, you know. Mm.
0: I find that quite interesting with architects is that we do talk about the sublime and delightful things and then there are a lot of clients who will be talking to us about very practical, pragmatic things and then the things that they'll come back to you with, with feedback and they say, did you plan for that beautiful, you know, amount of light to come in in the mornings to hit the kitchen where I'm having my morning cup of coffee? And you know, sometimes you did, <laughs> but um, have you had have you had some moments like that? That
1: exact thing happened to me actually a, a long time ago. But I had a client, a builder, had said to me, we were still in the kind of de- he'd popped back because he was fixing some defects during the defects liability period, and he said to me, oh, speaking to the client, and it was winter, and they must have, anyway, and they said do you know, it's absolutely amazing. I sit in this room and in winter the sun goes all the way back and hits the back of the wall and we get this beautiful, and then in summertime it doesn't come in at all. It's not hot at all. Do you, do you think Claire meant to do that? And he's like, yeah, I think so. I think she would have meant to do that. And, and no matter how much you kind of, you know, we've, we often see, you know, we really do try to um, explain the process of why we're doing things and even try and, you know, give clients an understanding of um, how to, you know, use their buildings and live in their buildings and use windows and create, allow for cross ventilation and not just revert to a switch of air conditioning. But it's quite, it's, it is funny that you, it's easy to forget what intrinsic knowledge we have as architects um, and to not forget that that those moments almost become second nature in, in the way we plan a house or the way we site it or the way we design it, um, that there is a lot of care and consideration that you, you often won't find in other forms of buildings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, a wonderful part of our job is that there is that element of surprise. Even though I think sometimes people think we're just associated with plans and making sure everything's thought about beforehand. Sometimes these lovely surprises and moments do come into our work. Thinking about architecture, you know, a lot of people think might think you know, large, big public buildings, you know, Sydney Opera House or Eureka Tower, or something like that. Um, but there are some high-profile architects who have small-scale. Public projects like a public toilet or or like a a shack uh, in their portfolio, not just big things. And um, some of these projects in Australia have won some awards. You know, Kirsten Thompson's public toilet block was a beautiful, beautiful project. And John, your Shearer's quarters in Tassie, that's amazing. What benefit can you guys bring to these smaller projects? You know, including the projects that have these tiny budgets. How is it different to the work an, an engineer or a draftsman might be asked to do on these projects that uh, people think they're, they're small, they might not need so much thought?
2: It is interesting, this whole idea of scale and intensity. And Very often you find some of these smaller projects, may not be complex, but they are invariably intense. The experience of engagement with is intense or the detailing or something, there's something about that intensity of small work that I think draws people's attraction. There's a, um, I often find that despite whatever people might be, whatever work of, walk of life they might be involved with, there is a common fascination by particularly residential projects. And something that's so small and condensed of that, Curious project has drawn a large amount of interest. And there's something about its sense of landscape, its, that scale, the fact that you can read the whole thing in one view, it, it, it um, does allow people to sort of appreciation appreciate the whole of the building in its entirety um, and then imagine themselves in it. I think it's a fairly mm. universal appreciation that we all have. I think it is the translation of that to other projects is really interesting. I, I, I feel for our practice, we benefit from that intimacy of engagement we have with our residential work and we take that to. Projects of larger scale, it be a university project or a commercial building, that kind the kind of um, engagement that draws our curiosity into how people operate and what they feel when they uh, experience different kinds of spaces probably comes a lot out of our, out of our smaller residential work. And likewise, the big buildings use that translation of things that are fairly common to people sociability and the the intimacy of spaces is relatively translatable from very small to very large projects so those projects have about them the opportunity to experiment and engage with um, uh, a range of human emotions that can be translated into much larger projects
0: right so is that like a a tangible thing how you were saying it sort of translates to both big and small do you think that's because it's about how people interact with each other and being able to say, oh, doesn't this space feel nice? Or, you know, being able to work with people and communicate with people and use the space together?
2: Oh, well, I mean, so, so much about particularly residential architecture is very aspirational. As a roundabout way of answering your question. We've, I've, over the years, had people who've come to us with a house that they saw seven or eight or ten years earlier that they really, like, and are waiting for the right Block of land to come onto the market, or somebody to die and leave the money, or, or whatever <laughs> or whatever was requiring. It held dear this appreciation of a particular project very often. Or sometimes that might and I'm sure Clear would find this two people often you'll come to you and they'll find there's a lineage of your work, and they know they'll name six or seven different projects. And that aspect of it is actually, it's both very rewarding, but it shows that. Um, the sorts of people often come to architects, do consider um, that aspirational uh, objective is something that's really clarifying to them. It allows them to think about what kind of materials they appreciate, what kind of spaces that they most feel comforting or what excites them or whatever. And so very often stories of that level of engagement with clients come from a, a deep appreciation that people have had, and often for a, over a... A significant
1: period of time yeah i suppose even piggybacking on john's comment the, the observation i would make i mean being a smaller practice the change in scale is much less relevant in the work that we do compared to that of john water architects but the thing that i would imagine having you know that we're now we've come from doing a lot of domestic work and even say small retail projects and commercial projects and now moving into larger multi-residential projects or bigger commercial projects is there is that opportunity for I mean John mentioned before intimacy you know that because that, it's quite particularly if you're doing a domestic project there is a kind of there's an emotional component to it which it's, it's much less transactional than say a commercial project may be but there there's also often much more of an opportunity to explore craft I would imagine or that kind of that, that detail not that you know I mean John certainly you know, imbues a lot of craft in his larger projects too, and then often the the, the luxury of time is another thing that I would um, see as well. Because you know, we we quite enjoy the fact that now with that we've got a more diverse range of projects. You've got the kind of developer work that's much more time-sensitive and critical and fast-paced, but then the housing projects, often we're finding we're having to kind of keep the clients moving along at a reasonable, you know, it, it kind of ticks along, yeah. <laughs> but from a from a resource management, which is the kind of, you know, boring business side to a practice, but it can be very challenging. You've either got not enough work or you've got way too much work and, hey, you kind of juggle mm-hmm. that. Um, but I think, you know, I, I suppose um, I think that's a, a wonderful thing looking at um, practices like John's and the 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 scale like that the, you know the, the some projects are really enormous and that then that there is still those smaller detailed crafted projects that are taken on um, and that there is certainly other examples of architects you know globally in Australia that do that but it, it, it's yeah. certainly not you can't say that um, for all large practices because they think oh they don't have the right staff to do it all the and I, I imagine it would have to be something very much led by the principals and director and that's you know mm. certainly that's my take on John is he, he has you know such a, um, a, a passion and interest in that which is obviously what led to them, um the Venice project and you know that, that complete uh, ability to jump from huge master plans to very small detailed um, projects I think is a, a you know a wonderful thing to kind of observe and watch and and I think that, that there's not a lot of architects that do do that.
2: Claire I imagine in your work your ESOP, stores they have that level of intensity and invention and imagine the the commissions going from one to the other they have to have a again a high degree of variance but that amazing refinement probably uh, to me would be one of your equivalents of that they must be very testing little projects that have been a, a real success.
1: Yeah look I think they were they are and I think also what's interesting is when you compare say a little uh, 40 square meter retail project like Aesop that we've done over the years versus a house, you know, a, a retail project often is kind of conceived, develop, uh, documented, and des- you know, designed and documented, and executed within maybe eight weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks, you know, that that's a much faster. And so in a way um, we really enjoyed doing retail early in our practice because it was a almost we treated them a bit like designer sketches because you can move through ideas and test things and you're not necessarily as not that being not that doing domestic architecture is inhibiting but you can perhaps be a little bit more um experimental um with the spaces because they were not spaces to live in they were spaces to kind of be you know i suppose i don't know to experience whereas house projects you know if you're lucky you get through through a house project in one year sorry two years and more often than not you know we'll work on a house for four years or five years you know from that that process so and while that's you know, I suppose tenacity is often a, a sort of a quality that is really important, I think, as an architect, mm. not to be, you know, by any means stubborn, but holding on to an idea and trying... It's very easy for ideas to get whittled away after a long period of time, and I can imagine that would be very much the case also. It happens on smaller projects like houses, but would certainly... can imagine that can be a, the case too on larger architecture where you're just constantly being chipped at, you know, value managed, you know, and it's just how do you hold on to that idea and kind of preserve it? I mean, I think... Good architects, we have to be very, you, you, sh- you know, we need to be, we need to understand how to put a building together and understand the technical way of assembling a building and, you know, design things that, um, that you know, uh, meet the budget. But at the same time, it's, it's I suppose, a, a gripe that some architects have that often an architect is not kept involved in that decision-making process on big projects because I certainly know that's been one of the great things of, of say taking on the role and I suppose the stress of being developer on Nightingale is but ultimately I get to decide what stays in the project and what comes out. Like I've still got to meet the budget, it's still got to mm. become vi- it's still got to be viable but I've, I've not got someone else telling me what we're cutting and what we're not
0: yeah well i guess if i just come back to the example of kirsten thompson's public toilet that she had you know with these wonderful projects where we're talking about intimacy and experience do you think that a public toilet is sort of more of a hard sell or do you think it's actually an easier project to say look we should take some care with it
1: i I visited that on um national jury actually so it's a you know i mean i'm sure many people have visited it just in their own time but it's a fantastic really great project and it was very deserving of the um prize for small architecture it's a perfect example, really, of a utilitarian public amenity that could really be designed to purely serve a function of the road stop and provide somewhere to stop and use the bathroom, but is delightful on so many ways. And even dealing with a lot of challenging issues like security, cultural requirements of different user groups, their privacy, uh, and then even, you know, security and safety with illumination at night and not having corners and and also then also providing... I suppose, a distant sense of delight to passerby is that you get this kind of illumination as a lantern at night time. So I think it was it's a it's a very carefully considered, but ultimately stripped back and edited and simple, um, you know, when you sort of study it, um, a simple building. But so clever they're the ones where you go oh that's so clever I didn't think of that you know <laughs> um, but I think it's great and you know and maintenance was a huge issue too graffiti you know all of those kind of factors and it really shows that they're the kind of projects when you alluded to before Daniel about you know what would an engineer do and I suppose it's like why do architects get commissioned to do sound walls, you know, which has become a bigger thing the last kind of 20 years. That could They could just be designed by engineers to solve acoustic issues, whereas you've got the kind of lineage of Woodmarsh doing the Eastern Freeway back in, you know, 15, 20 years ago and lots of Melbourne architects doing urban design and freeway wall because it actually makes that process of driving on a very long mundane road, it solves the problem, but it also brings a much a heightened level of experience.
0: Brilliant. So you guys are both... Very talented at designing houses. So, when you're working on houses, all clients are different, but clients on houses have as much lived experience in houses as as anyone does. As any architect, you know, they've spent their lives interacting with them, utilizing them, just being in houses. So, I wanted to ask, how have you been influenced by your lived experience? And does that ever get in the way when you're talking to clients who? have their own lived experiences who can just say, look, oh, no, look, I've had that before. And, you know, ha- really don't like having a sunroom or <laughs> they, they can they can say to you, you know, oh, look, I lived in a place like that for 20 years and it just doesn't work.
1: Well, John, you've just mm-hmm. recently re- redone your house. You should talk about this. I have. <laughs> <I have. laughs>
2: well, uh, yeah, in, in answering that, I can refer to my own recent experience. Thankfully, we just uh, renovated the house, which took two years nearly. Uh, and moved back in before we had to move into isolation. So it has oh, been, lucky. <laughs> it has been um, greatly tested over the last 15 weeks now, working from home. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think the joy in doing houses is is this ability to translate experience. And I think many residential clients enjoy um, the conversation of, of, of our very personal research and, and our... And our drawing our own experience into houses. We always have to be careful because there is no formula for doing a family home or a home for a couple or an individual. And you can, I think if you particularly work solely in this area or work over the area for a long period of time, as I have, you've got to avoid being formulaic. And even in the way we present to our clients, we we must be careful to be great listeners and particularly great observers. A lot of, I think... Most of the ideas that we have had over the years that have really driven a residential project haven't so much come out of the client's direct brief or the written brief, but through observation and, and conversation. It's very often those those strands of um, sort of fleeting knowledge that we get that often become the cornerstone to the design of a house, Some some reference to history or family dynamic or aspiration for change very often we're agents for change with the whole idea of this new house is because of a anticipation of a new phase of life or both mm. uh, personal or, or family life and we sort of become people who can coax a conversation to actually bring out sort of the subtle inferences that can be really central to the, um, the architectural narrative that's developed. I like the idea of kind of really a conversation that has to, I have to stop short of being intrusive because I know I'm often told I am a very curious person. <laughs> and and that really knowing, you know, how a couple came together or what's caused this or an object I might see on the wall, where did that come from and what part did that play in their life or something because I just know from experience it's often those things, those little fragments of information that often become really central to to our engagement with the residential project. Mm.
0: And Claire, similar experience, like it, it, most house projects are quite personal? and.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree exactly with what John was saying. I think um, we're always kind of looking for this little, almost like a hidden gem, like these little clues that get revealed and they, they really um, reveal themselves through conversation and that, that listening and observation is critical. And I think it's very easy... So, you know, some people some people are more articulate at what they think, they, you know, what they're looking for and others really, you know, say, oh, I need three bedrooms and two bathrooms. And, you know, it's the pragmatic list and that list can be quite similar across projects. But we find that the um, when you really dig a little deeper and get under the kind of, you know, the, the skin or really probe as to what makes people tick or what experiences or you know, uh, that they've liked and disliked, it really can lead to very different outcomes. And I think that that's what's really um, makes these projects, you know, highly personal. And I love that, you know, I really enjoy that process with them. And, and also I think uh, in a way it, it gives you more material in a way to work with in, in helping make decisions and guide the process. Because sometimes it, in a way when we've designed we've designed projects but we don't know who the end user is, that often can be almost more problematic because so in a way a bit like when you do an apartment or uh, or a case study house we almost I suppose are making up our own imaginary client or we make ourselves the client what would I want to live in well, how would I want to experience it because I do think uh, well it's certainly how we work anyway but ultimately you know it, it should always be human and human focused and people orientated and about how you feel in a space, how you move through a space and how does a space, you know, is it a series of contrasts or what, you know. And so therefore, you can, I don't think you can really design a space not thinking about who's going to use it. So, and with mm. a client, you obviously have that person. And so by understanding their kind of wants and needs more, I think that actually, you know, it, it gives you more material to kind of leverage and, and test ideas I could actually also link that back to your first question. I think architects
2: will often bring that level of responsibility to a residential, a small residential project that we might to a large project in the city. I, I mm-hmm. think one of the things I do despair about is, is what I often call the, the, the sense of entitlement. You can walk along, there's that new house being right. built along mm-hmm. from us here. And you walk on, you can see that I'm entitled to build 1.2 from that boundary, 1.2 from that boundary, 4.5 off the frontage, and... You see these great big houses that architects have probably not had an involvement with. I would suggest the one I'm talking about, and architects being nowhere near it. And this massive formula of entitlement mm-hmm. they've removed all the trees from the beautiful 70s building they mm-hmm. demolished, an architect design building they demolished for the house. Not only did they demolish the house, but importantly, they demolished the garden too. So, this mm-hmm. new big, overblown house is both sits to everything that they're entitled to build on the site. And you look into it, and I have to see as I walk past it. As I tend to do and glare at it, um, <laughs> the insides are big and flabby and overblown. And I mean, an architect would actually have that sense and probably bring to the equation of the of the entire site about garden outlook and light coming in at different times of the day and a, set, a, 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 a adequate space between you and your neighbours. All of those sorts of things that many of these projects that uh, don't involve architects. Um, defy, I think, and I think there is a responsibility. We're mm. losing so much green space due to this kind of inefficient, overblown scale of so many new houses being built in old suburbs.
0: Mm. It's it's an interesting problem I find just dealing with memory uh, when it comes to you know lived experiences. That if people in Australia were used to and have great memories of growing up and and having wonderful family memories in a really big five bedroom six bedroom family home that that can sometimes be what we're working against it's uh you know there's almost it feels like a a proof based on memory and experience that big house means happy family
1: i actually think yeah, though, yeah. daniel on that point it actually really goes back a bit to what you said at the beginning with land values and and capital improvement on of a site and mm. i think too often people will Think oh we need the forty square house because we have to have an ensuite for every bedroom. It's a kind of real estate tick box, you know, as to what yeah. it, and it is actually an intrinsic flaw. I think in our kind of um, the whole financial valuation, the lending model, you know, of when a valuer will come through a house to value a property that they, you yeah. know, that they often whether something has got architectural um, merit um, actually. It, doesn't play into it much I don't necessarily think I think it's about you know how many bedrooms how many bathrooms how big is it you know is it like you know is it weatherboard or is it brick um and so I think that is uh off, you know a, a conversation I've often had, had to have with clients because we often I mean I actually often use my house as a kind of reference point that it's 205 square meters and it is completely generous to living space you know and it's just it's actually kind of re trying to recalibrate what space is needed and to try and um, educate and have the sort of conversation with uh, potential clients about the, the benefits and maybe um, architectural projects often end up being what I call denser because they've got more built-in joinery or more built-in furniture and that leads to perhaps not needing to uh, insert as much furniture but because there's all this storage and space to put your things and you're not having to clutter it with a whole lot of furniture but also that there's a very clear Um, sort of I suppose spatial planning and you know careful curation of spaces on how they connect and how you move through the space and how you occupy space that therefore you don't need to be you don't need these enormous houses and so there's actually nothing worse than when you go into I've been to houses you know people have invited you over and, and they're so big and they they've got kind of regular furniture but it's kind of vast and you they've just got this there's sort of no soul and they you know and they can't kind of work out what's wrong but it's like your living room six by six, well, why does it need to be that big you know and so um, I don't know I'm sure you said but anyway, it is a challenge and I think it's a, it's a it's not only you know um, it's such an inefficient way of building you know and I think these days we have to be even more only more aware of the footprint of what we're building you know uh, the green spaces you said John, around houses and I think I, um, and 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 even what it you know what it um, costs to run you know if we can have small um, efficient housing it's you know uh, it's going to be much better on um, everything really the environment and the climate change mm-hmm. and whatnot.
2: I, I presume if you've got a, a if you've got four kids and and uh, five bathrooms in a house and they can all run simultaneously mm. your water usage usage must be extraordinary over the traditional house that had one or maybe two. Mm.
1: Mm. But also that yeah. thing of, um, you know, I, I say well, who wants to clean all the en-suites, but also where does a child learn compromise or negotiation yeah. of actually or patience yeah. to wait their turn or get organized in the morning? I don't know. It's it's kind of, it's it's interesting. So,
0: so working on houses, multi-res and commercial projects, educational projects, I mean, you've got both have such a wealth of amazing experience that, uh, looking back over your body of work, what is both of yours most enduring moment of satisfaction that you've experienced in your work? What really stands out as as one of those one of those great moments or one of those great experiences?
1: Over to you, John. Yes, so please. <laughs> <so it's laughs> right. uh, right.
2: um, well, look, it's it's that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, And and there really wouldn't be one. Um, And I think probably like many architects, if there was to be one, it's constantly updated by something else. I mean, I, thankfully, it's one of the great privileges of our profession as you see evidence of what you've done. I think it purifies most of us into doing our best work because if we do something less than good, it's, it stands there for all, all time. So, um, uh, I think there are, there are probably many of them. It's interesting with the, the architecture awards coming up and we're starting to work out how we can have our virtual awards nights, celebrations and things. I, I'm now probably more at the stage that of awareness of the various people who have contributed to the project. So I, I've probably um, have to prevent myself from thinking singularly about the best thing I've done, actually remember, uh, as we've been gathering people together for the different... Uh, both the New South Wales and the Victorian Awards nights, gosh, who did work on the project? And that's right, and they worked in the schematic design of early design development phase or through the documentation. And that one of the great privileges of, of practice is this collaborative nature of architects coming together. So when I look at many of the projects I've, I sort of have to adjust my frame of reference by reminding myself who who worked on it? Because all of these projects have, have a vast cast that of, of, of really wonderful people have invested in in my pract in the practice that I started all those years ago to make that work. So I, I think it's it, it's a list. That, yes, there would be a series of projects along the way. But very often a project that came and changed us for some reason. That it was a, a scaling up or a, or a, a commission that took us into a new territory. Our first research building or our first you know, got back to the first house um, and I remember though and very often that somebody's out, gone out onto a limb a, a member of a committee or somebody particularly has said, now I know this firm hasn't got much uh, background and experience in, in this kind of work but I have they've got the potential. There's always someone who will take on that and, and and so many of our projects have been due to a particular person or a small group of people who have come together to actually place their trust in give us that Commission. if I was to answer anything, I uh, did probably recently things. Certainly so being invited to go to Venice and our somewhere other our Venice did, that is a very recent, remarkable thing that City give gave me and the group who worked on it a, a, a remarkable, remarkably rewarding experience traveling to Venice to see it in place, encouraging the the guys from Jacaranda down in Geelong to actually build the whole thing in 20 days. <laughs> that was just a wonderful wonderful story of our firm drawing in people from outside as we do more and more as we mature as a firm bringing in natasha john's messenger an artist and coco and max these two young filmmakers that whole enterprise was just wonderful um, but then really it's down to the latest thing at the moment we're working in isolation with the university of tasmania and we've done all of the stakeholder engagement and just completed two weeks ago a schematic design the entirety of it has been done within these 15 weeks of lockdown wow. for two buildings. And to have these sorts of sessions and look into family homes with a clarinet lesson happening behind a child <laughs> flying through the distance or a cat jumping up onto a keyboard, You kind of, that, it's been a rare privilege to have that kind of engagement and be more evident of so many people involved. And as a team, we've, um, we've been using... Miro Technologies, Miro board, and literally Mm. grabbing the pen from each other and drawing over each other's drawings and posting interesting observations or articles or whatever along the way. So Mm. working during these particular times has probably privileged the work that we're working on as something that that I find particularly uh, extraordinary and uh, deeply rewarding. So Claire, what what about your
0: experience? What's something that you love to look back on?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's one of those things that um, we, you know, I I find that you work on projects and we always, we often go back to favourite projects as reference points or things that um, we were successful that, you know, we want to kind of build on. But at the same time, um, I suppose there's always the kind of, the current projects that are, you know, that are exciting and the the kind of new favourites. I think for me as an enduring moment I mean there's the work as in that you know things that um hopefully will be enduring but then there's all also just the the nature of I think running a practice and we're in our 15th year this year and um I think for me the the kind of relationships that I've built um and obviously builders are key to that certainly the staff in the office and we've um you know, as John, you know, said with his practice, it's you know, your um, the the team is you know, it's a team effort, and that's they're hugely important. And, and for me, it's really like a I suppose our you know, it's the work family, um, and it's you know, very much teamwork bringing these projects to to fruition. Uh, and I think also with the team, what's always very interesting is to see people who've come through our doors and worked with us, whether it be for two years or twelve years, uh, and then go on to start their own practice. And so that can be. It's always a sad time you know to lose great people but it's also a really nice thing to see um, that people develop the skill and knowledge that they feel uh, empowered to go and start their own practice and so there's a kind of um you know a lot of people that have done that you know over the last 15 years which is really nice um, and then mm-hmm. also with relationships with clients i think um we we've probably become more selective over the last five years with, of the commissions that we that we take on and and try to make um or try to find more values aligned clients um whether it be the you know the right project or outcome or whatever aspirations i suppose um but um so many of our clients have then become and maybe this happens more in the domestic uh, market but you know referrals or long-term relationships so we've got clients that we've, you know, done their fourth house, you know, and you sort of think often, oh, we're only going to do one. It's their one house and they'll live in that for yeah. 20 years. <laughs> um, but there's something really delightful about that kind of repeat client and having that, that kind of lineage and experience and knowledge of each other and that kind of um Relationship um, that really becomes far more of a friendship rather than a kind of just professional relationship, and so I, I really value that, and I and I see that as kind of an enduring influence on our work, really, and the way we practice. Um, and then I suppose also, you know, projects for, for me that probably had, like John said before, as bigger steps up or changes of typology or scale. But for us, Nightingale was a kind of a, you know, which we've sort of invested in Jeremy's project, Nightingale 1, into 2014, six years ago. But um, our project has been going for, I don't know, three years or so. Um, And that that has been a, a... a big learning curve not only from the typology but the kind of all of the layers to that project and certainly mm. um wearing a kind of de- developer's hat and being the managing director which takes up most of my time rather than the architecture hat you know that's you know, the project architect mm. kind of manages the architecture more um, but the knowledge and the and then also the friendships um made with all of the architects because that we're doing the village there's six buildings in the village and just that learning from each other and um and learning you know from people who have different experiences and i think just I don't know. I suppose showing what is possible—you know—that you can have these kind of visionary, crazy people like Jeremy McLeod, who who want to do these things, but also <laughs> that people with, um, you know, you, you can make a change one, you know, one person at a time. And so I think that that's been a, a great learning. It's been a very steep learning curve for me.
2: Mm.
0: And uh, it seems to be a, a running theme when I've asked other architects, you know, looking back on their looking back on their careers when they get sort of get past the ten-year mark. Um, of working on their own projects, that the people involved in the projects are the, are the real driving force that they look back on and they just go, oh, you know, if I hadn't done that project, I wouldn't have met this person who is now a friend and not just a client. Why do you think it is um, that that is what architects love to look back and, and remember the people as opposed to the project where we might have had, you know, huge yeah. long emails talking about a window detail and then it's actually, it's actually about the people? Why do you think that is?
2: Look, we are probably forgiven the, the injustices of the journey by
1: these the, the uh, Actually, I you know what? I always it's say it's like childbirth. You know, you go, never, <laughs> never again. This. Not that you've had to push one out, John, but never again, yeah. never again. And then two years later, the endorphins come back, you forget, and you're like, let's do it again, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> there's,
2: there's a reason why most children are about three, uh, three years apart, <laughs> so, you know, in our case, yep. about three. Yep. Um, and I think it is that's that's the case. I mean, I, you know, it's, every project has some aspect of, of, you know, discomfort or pain along the way. But generally, if it's been a success, all is forgotten, and the uh, the appreciate, deep appreciation is the evidence of what then exists. Uh, I think as part of that is that moment where that you have to almost push the architect out and becomes there. There's a moment where we find most residential clients where. It's got to become their house in some aspect of selecting furniture and art and whatever else, and then you're sort of invited back into it for um, once <laughs> it's become theirs.
1: Yeah. And the, the trick is not to make too many comments, <laughs> 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 which can be hard. Uh,
2: Spill big wine on the carpet. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I Look, I, I certainly think... It, not all client. You don't have the same rapport. Not. It's just. Not, it's human nature. You're not going to have the same rapport with every client. You know. It's. It's like yeah. any kind of human elements of human engagement. But I think there is something when there are some that come along that there really is a kind of deep mutual appreciation or an enjoyment of conversation. And often it boils down to a, a deep trust in us. And I always find that that's always often the most. It's kind of liberating, really. But it, you know because. You, it's kind of half the battle sometimes of trying to and you still have to go through the um, taking you know really explaining why and, and and we never expect people to just to sit back and accept what we're saying we want the dialogue yeah. we want the conversation because we want to yeah. test that things are right but in a way a passive client is is just as scary as an overbearing client because you're sort of scared that they haven't really understood because they're too afraid to yeah. ask questions and I've had that experience and that's kind of terrifying too <laughs> this you all, you really do want the middle somewhere in the middle that there is you yeah. know um engaged conversation you know deep listening both ways and that ultimate trust and that often that when clients will say okay I'm not really sure but I'm going to go with what you say because I trust what you think and and that and that that is liberating and I think it, it then it, it only leads to um I think extremely you know much more successful outcomes because there hasn't been that kind of angst or Distrust or animosity or, you know, and, you know, that's the last thing you want. Because as John said, there are always bumps along the road. There are always challenges to solve. No matter how comprehensive the documentation is or how much um, due diligence was done, there are always issues that crop up. And it's how people deal with it during that uh, process. Um, you don't need to add other layers of kind of um, uh, conflict uh, only make for a much more painful and stressful process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, for anyone who might be listening to this episode, because they're about to take on a project, if they're if they're sort of thinking, you know, what, why should I, why should I employ an architect, and they're just about to start going through the process, what would you like to say to them? Oh, look, I
2: think be prepared to trust somebody else implicitly with your dreams and hopes and aspirations, and the money. Uh, and establish a relationship that could be one of the most acutely fascinating ones that you've ever had, but be prepared for the journey. I, I think it is interesting. I think Claire's mentioned a word about trust. We find it is very necessary for clients to have that bridge of trust to allow an architect to move forward and not have to, they as a client, not have to control every aspect of the process, but be prepared to be surprised and um, engaged with something beyond you know immediate control I think the best examples we have of it was where at the end of it the client has said it's nothing that I had imagined but I'm deeply engaged by it and and, and love the whole thing dearly but it's not what I imagined at the outset you sort of don't want a client that says mm, well that was good it's just what I'd imagined <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah look I mean I think from a I think that's I, I agree with John I think I suppose often even for someone who's never engaged with an architect before, which often you find with residential clients they haven't, I do think it's quite important for them to, you know, it, it's important for um, for them to, you know, look at, um, uh, you know, various architects' work and there does need to be a rapport for, it sounds obvious, but there needs to be a rapport for that work, that body of work um, because the, there's no point, and we've had this happen before, we've had really great um relationships doing someone's house and then we've been referred to a client or colleague of theirs sorry and then that person's come to us saying oh we don't really know what we like but we love our friend's house and you they loved working with you so will you do our house and we're like okay sure and you know talk to them a lot about trust and the importance of you know and it was just a nightmare of a job you know (laughs) because I think they've just assumed because they you know it works for their friend that it's going to work for them and they just, you know, it just didn't work. This was a long time ago. We don't tend to have those issues anymore, but thank God. But it's, but it is important. And I often even say to clients, meet with a few architects, talk to them. It, it, you need to feel that you can work with that person, and actually, you do need to feel that you can open up and be quite. I think, especially doing housing, which is obviously a lot of what we do, it is an intimate process, and you do need to feel that you can talk to the architect and not um, and have a conversation. And so, so I think that is important. And but I wholeheartedly know that in get, working with an architect as i kind of said at the very beginning of the, the process yes it costs more than going with a drafts person but the outcome even if the total spend is identical will be it's like chalk and cheese it's you know a draft person has a time and a place perhaps but it's there's a, it's a very different process that um that you go through and that kind of um interrogation and, and testing and and site responsiveness and um social responsibility and, and climate climactically responsive, all of those things. They're all literally this kind of big melting pot and kind of a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, which is obviously yes. what architects love solving. Um, but it's a, it's a, it does take a long time to get, the, you know, to get the right solution and it's a, you know, I suppose you get what you pay for. So <laughs> don't you, John? <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, well,
0: thank you so much for, for joining us for the Hearing Architecture podcast. It was really valuable hearing about your takes on the value of, of architecture and what architects can bring to everyone's projects. So thank you so much, John, and thank you so much, Claire, and we look forward to hearing from you again in the future.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. Pleasure.
0: This has been episode three of season two of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. It was a huge pleasure to speak to our guests, Claire Cousins and John Wardle in this episode. Their contribution to the Australian architecture profession and the community is immense, and we're very grateful that they gave up some of their time to speak with us. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gorton, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalna Sparks, Tom McKenzie and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network, in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.